I'll just pray to start, and then we'll, we'll kick off. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we are aware, as Jesus himself said, uh, that no one is good but God. And we want your glory to be displayed this evening, Lord. And as I share this message, I pray that your voice would be heard, Lord, and I pray that you would be glorified. Amen. Well, good afternoon. I just want to start by saying uh, what a privilege it is uh, to come here and share with you all. Um, as I've just said to Ian, I do work locally, um, and it's been a very positive experience for me, a very uh, nice, supportive uh, family feel to the school where I work. Uh, however, I do stick out in two very obvious ways. Um, first, I'm the only male teacher to be employed by the school since its formation in 1866. And as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm, I'm originally from down south. In fact, the children I teach are only three and four years old, uh, but even they have noticed that I'm not local. So my very first week at the school, last September, uh, one of the, the little boys in my class turned to me and said, uh, Mr. Marshall, you're, you speak funny, don't you? <laughs> so despite that, it has been a great year. I have appreciated the opportunity to see more of Richard. And um, this is really is a privilege for me tonight because it's a chance for me to come to where I work and see how God is working. So I was saying to Ian beforehand that so often I drive in by the same route, drive out at the end of the day, but this is my first chance to come and meet some people who live locally and catch a glimpse of what God is doing here in Rotherham. So thank you for having me. Uh, when Richard invited me to preach, he explained that you've been doing this series on big people who make big mistakes. Um, you've been looking at many of the heroes of the Bible and realising that they were just human like us. They made mistakes just like us. And I just want to say at the outset that I think this is a very healthy Bible study to undertake. Because so often in church, we can fall into a celebrity culture where we view some Christians as superstars and the rest as ordinary. Isn't it wonderful, isn't it such a relief to see that God can use an adulterer like King David? Isn't it amazing to hear how God can use a murderer like the Apostle Paul? Just to reassure you by saying this, I'm not implying that I've ever engaged in adultery or murder. Uh, but I do know this, I am fundamentally a, a bad man. Mercifully, only God sees how bad I am. But I know in my heart just how much I've betrayed and ignored the Lord throughout my life. And yet, just as with these heroes of the Bible... He can still use me for his purposes. He still loves me. And this is the wonderful paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. So Richard explained to me that you were looking at big people making big mistakes. And he said I could choose my subject. I could choose the person I wanted to focus on. So I opened my Bible. I had to think. And in the end, the decision was very easy, very obvious. I've chosen to look at the Apostle Thomas, who struggled with doubt. Thomas made the big mistake of doubting the risen Lord Jesus. And this is a very obvious choice because my name is Thomas and I really, really struggle with doubt. I consider myself an expert at doubting simply because I've done so much of it. You name me a major Christian belief or doctrine and I've doubted it. My own mother once told me despairingly uh, that I will surely be the only person in heaven who will still work out a way to carry on doubting. So I've always had a certain bond with Thomas because... We share a name and we share this weakness in our respective Christian walks. 
So today our subject is Thomas, a big man who made the big mistake of doubting the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to start by explaining where we're headed this afternoon. It's a story of two halves tonight. So we're going to begin by looking at the account in John chapter 20 we've heard, exploring some of the possible reasons behind Thomas's doubting, and thinking about what we can learn from him. And then we're going to move on and examine the issue of doubting on a practical level, taking what we've learned from Thomas and applying it to our everyday Christian lives. So let's begin by turning to Thomas himself in the scriptures. If I could have the next slide, please. Thomas is mentioned three times in the Gospel of John. We first hear about him in chapter 11, when Jesus is telling his disciples that he must go back to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples as a group are feeling a bit iffy about this. They don't want to go back to Judea because the last time they were there, the people tried to kill Jesus. And it is Thomas who speaks up in Jesus' defence and says, let us go also to Judea so that we may die with him. Later in John chapter 14, we hear from Thomas once again. This time, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about how he must return to God the Father in order to prepare a place in heaven for his followers. As you can imagine, this was probably quite a difficult and confusing thing to hear for the disciples. And Thomas is brave enough to speak up and he asks Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So from these two earlier glimpses in John's Gospel, we can conclude that Thomas had courage, he was willing to go to Jesus to his death, and he was honest. He was, had the guts to question Jesus' teaching when he didn't understand. So we tend to think of Thomas and focus on his doubting, but he had some very endearing qualities as well. And of course, the third reference to Thomas is here in chapter 20. And I think it would be useful for me to outline what has happened in the intervening chapters. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's put on trial. He's executed unjustly as a criminal. His broken body is laid in a borrowed tomb. And we can only imagine what state of mind his disciples would have been in at this point. I'm sure they were feeling crushed. The most bitter sense of disappointment that their leader and their mentor had been executed. I'm convinced that they were feeling confused. Maybe they were wondering, is this really how it was meant to end? And I'm sure that they were feeling completely emotionally drained and tired after such an ordeal. But then suddenly, in the midst of all this hurt and confusion, reports start springing up that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Mary Magdalene goes to Jesus' tomb and finds it empty. When they hear her account... Peter and John race to the tomb and see the same thing, an empty grave with, em- with abandoned grave clothes. Meanwhile, Jesus appears to Mary. She doesn't recognise him at first, but his words to her convince her that it is Jesus. Later that same day, the disciples are hiding in a locked room. They're terrified of the same Jewish authorities that have conspired to murder Jesus. And suddenly, Jesus is right there in the room with them. They're overjoyed to see him. He blesses them. He tells them about the mission that they must undertake in his name. And we can imagine what an exhilarating, confusing and heady time this must have been. Some people have seen Jesus. Others haven't. Some people are convinced he has indeed been raised. Others aren't so sure. And this is the context of the passage we're about to examine. Because, of course, Thomas was one of those who wasn't convinced. 
crucially, Thomas hadn't been there when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the locked room. The disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And we might imagine that Thomas is feeling jealous, confused, even hurt that he's missed out. It is never nice being the person who misses out. It's never nice being the person who wasn't there when God moved. When I was growing up in Worcester, our church used to run adventure camps, possibly like the kind that Sam was describing earlier, held during the summer for the young people. They'd take a hundred or so young people away into the countryside for a week of sports, activities, fun and Bible studies. And I remember that one year I couldn't go. For whatever reason, I wasn't able to attend. So all my friends went off to this adventure camp without me. Now at the time, we had quite a thriving youth group in the church. So there was a great sense of expectancy about this adventure camp. And I remember being gutted that I couldn't go. And unfortunately for me, in the event, it turned out to be the most dynamic and incredible adventure camp ever. When my friends returned to Worcester, I still remember their voices on the other end of the phone telling me how life-changing it had been. People had become Christians. God had installed a new sense of love and unity into the fragmented youth group. And the Bible studies had been really inspiring. It had just been the most unbelievable week ever. And you can imagine how I felt. I felt quite jealous. I felt unwanted. I felt that God maybe had done this on purpose to spite me. Like Thomas, I was also tempted to doubt what I was hearing. Had the adventure camp really been that big a deal? Had it really taken off in the way my friends were describing? It's never nice to be the person who misses out. I have to say, since then, a quite worrying theme has developed in my Christian life. When, when I leave a Christian organisation or fellowship, it flourishes. So it's a, a bit worrying, really. Um, but what can we learn from this? Uh, I guess the lesson is, don't give up meeting with other Christians. It is so tempting sometimes to not go to church. It can be so easy to fall out of the habit of going to our small group. Just the sheer busyness of life can mean sometimes we drift away from our Christian friends, at least temporarily. This year, commuting here from, from York, I've been really tired in the evenings. And on a number of occasions, I've just given house group a miss. I just want to collapse. I just want to watch the television. At the weekends, there's schoolwork to do. Sometimes I've skipped church. I just think, you know, I could do with that extra morning just to get some work done and, and chill out. And the danger is, is that we miss out on what God wants to achieve in our lives and in the lives of our congregation. Our friends will start telling us, we have seen the Lord and we'll have missed out. As far as we can tell, it wasn't Thomas's fault that he wasn't there that first time in the locked room. But as much as it depends on us, let's make sure we're there. Let's make sure that we're regularly meeting with the Christian friends that God has given us so that we don't miss out. Thomas responds somewhat tetchily to the disciples' claim that they have seen the Lord. He says to them, verse 25, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. There are two things to note here. The first is that Thomas insists on a sensual experience of Jesus before he believes. He demands to see Jesus with his eyes. He demands to touch Jesus with his hands. He wants to encounter Jesus through his senses. And in some ways, Thomas's words here mirror the attitude of many people in the world around us. How many times have you heard someone say, 
Why doesn't God just show himself? If I could see God, I'd believe in him. I'm reminded of the song Innuendo by the rock group Queen. In the song, the lead singer, Freddie Mercury, contemplates the horrible state of the world around him, and then he cries out to God to show himself and release his mask. In these words, we hear the same demand that God should reveal himself so that people can see, hear, and touch him, just like any other person. But as we'll see later, this isn't the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. And if you want to know God, you'll have to find him by another path. The second thing to note about Thomas's words in verse 25 is that his belief in Jesus is conditional. He says, unless I seal the nail marks, unless I put my finger where the nails were, unless my conditions are met, I won't believe. And we can be guilty of setting out conditions for God before we believe as well. I remember a farcical situation when I was preparing to go to university. I had a, an offer from York to study there. And it all appeared settled. But then I started seriously to doubt whether I should go. Was it the right thing? I was feeling genuinely troubled about this. And rather than trusting in God, I started to doubt. And I started to give him conditions. So, for example, I went to visit my church minister about my problem. And before I set off, I said to God, well, if my church minister says that it's the right thing to do, if he agrees, I'll know that it's your will, God, and I'll go to university. And, of course, the church minister did think it was a good idea, so I'd be fine for a while, but then the doubts would return. So I would go and see some other Christian friends for advice, and I'd say to God beforehand, well, if these people agree, um, it's the right thing for me to do, I'll believe. And then they would agree, and I'd be fine, but then I'd fall back into doubt. And looking back on it, the problem was that I was giving conditions to God. I was saying, if X, Y, and Z happen, I'll believe it. I look back now and think how much easier my life would have been had I believed the Lord to start with and got on with my life. We can now turn back to the scriptures and look at Jesus' response to Thomas. So from verse 26, it says a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas, this time, was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop your doubting and believe. Again, I want to make two observations about these next verses. The first thing to say is that Jesus responds so graciously to Thomas. Notice how he quotes um, Thomas' own words back to him. Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. By quoting Thomas, Jesus is rebuking him for his doubt, but he's rebuking Thomas in a gentle, indirect way. Jesus doesn't tell Thomas off. He doesn't point the finger aggressively. He takes a softer approach. And sometimes I worry that the fruit of the Spirit that's missing the most in our churches is gentleness. How many times do we go blazing into a situation, throwing accusations around, without being sensitive? In the words of Matthew Henry, who was commentating on this passage, Jesus addresses Thomas' doubts without accusing him. And that's an important distinction. We can learn from Jesus' approach here in our own dealings with people who doubt. How do we respond when when one of our Christian friends uh, shares a genuine doubt with us? Do we batter down the hatches and go into defensive mode? Do we point the finger accusingly? Do we think they're rather silly for doubting something that's so obvious to us? 
I was part, I did get to university in the end, uh, and I was part of the Christian Union there. And we would meet every week in small groups for prayer and Bible study. Uh, on, on, on occasions, people would try to offload their genuine doubts about the Bible passage we were looking at. And sometimes when this happened, other Christians would react defensively rather than graciously. They would point the finger rather than bearing with that struggling person in love. And I was one of them that was pointing the finger. So we can learn from Thomas's approach with Thomas, from Jesus' approach with Thomas. Jesus takes Thomas's doubts seriously and addresses them head-on without accusing Thomas in the process. Nevertheless, the second thing I want to highlight from Jesus' words here is that he does command Thomas to believe. Stop your doubting and believe. It's a definite command. Sometimes I worry that we treat doubt in church as an inevitable, if regrettable, part of Christian life. And we say to people, there, there, you'll be fine. You know, doubt is very natural. And we leave them to it. Now, in one sense, doubt is natural. We all doubt on occasion. That's just part of being human. It's part of being a Christian. It's part of walking by faith. But in another sense, doubt can sometimes be a form of rebellion. I want to introduce you to someone now. The next slide, please. This is the Christian writer, Hannah Whittle-Smith, as you can tell, lived a lived long time ago. Uh, and she said this about doubting. I have to say I paraphrased her words because she was writing in the 19th century. It was a little bit old-fashioned. So she said this. I would no sooner comfort an alcoholic about his addiction than I would com- comfort a doubter about his doubts. To both men, I would instead proclaim the perfect deliverance that Jesus Christ has in store for them. Hannah Smith is drawing a parallel between an alcoholic and a serial doubter, and she is saying that both men are actually rebelling against God. Doubt can be rebellion. Remember that Thomas has earlier said that unless his conditions are met, he will not believe. There's a sense of stubbornness in his words. Well, here Jesus snaps him out of his doubting by commanding him to believe. And on occasion, we simply need to hear Jesus' clear and urgent words to us. Stop your doubting. Believe. So we've looked at Thomas and we've examined Jesus' response. Before we move on to think about doubts on a more practical level, I want to draw some further conclusions from the last few verses in this account in John 20. Thomas responds to Jesus by exclaiming, My Lord and my God. This shows us that genuine faith in Christ will always be followed by a love for and a devotion to Christ. When I was preparing this sermon, I was trying to think of anyone in history, any person who's believed in the resurrection and yet hasn't ended up following Jesus. And I couldn't think of anyone. The two follow each other. Thomas calls Jesus, my Lord, my God. And let's make sure as Christians that we never neglect this personal dimension to our faith. I'm sure there have been times when I've done this, when I've neglected my personal love for Jesus. It was probably, again, when I was a student, so walking around in arrogant fashion with Bible commentaries under my arm, trying to look cool, you know. I made it all about theology, all about truth and doctrine. And while these things are vital, nothing can compensate for our personal love relationship with Jesus. Jesus responds by saying to Thomas, verse 29, "'Because you've seen me, you have believed.'" Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So Thomas and the other disciples actually had the privilege of seeing the risen Jesus with their eyes. But Jesus says that the really blessed people are the people who don't see with their eyes and yet believe. 
in a real way, he's talking about us here. He's talking about you and me. He's addressing the generations of Christians that have followed those first few witnesses. We've already seen that it is not God's way to reveal himself physically to people. Well, if this is the case, how do we know him then? In a way, we do see Jesus, but we see him with the eyes of our heart, as the Apostle Paul puts it. God reveals himself in our, to us in our hearts, in our consciences, in our inner being, so that we are sure he is there. We are sure he is real, even though we've never seen him with our eyes. And in this situation where you're sure that Jesus is inside you, but you don't see him around you, faith is the bridge, is the bridge that we need to bridge that gap. The Bible says you can't know God without faith. You can't know God without taking that risk, that leap, and saying to yourself, despite all the physical evidence to the contrary, I know inside that God is real, and I'm going to stake my life on that. Okay, so we've looked more carefully at Thomas now in John 20. Now I want to move on to think about doubt on a more practical level. How can we take the lessons we've learned from Thomas and deal with the issue of doubt as it occurs in our everyday lives. Before we start, I wanted to say at the outset that there are, there are no easy answers. I've already shared with you that I'm a serial doubter myself, and I can say that there are sometimes days, weeks, even months, when God seems far away. Everything is confusing. I, I, I can't really get a handle on things. And I have to say, ironically, uh, this last week has been one of those weeks. So I don't want to stand here and present smug, quick-fix answers. Sometimes life is complex. Faith can be complex, and it's not easy. But above everything else, I'm convinced of one thing, and that is that God doesn't want us to doubt. He isn't content to leave us in our doubts. Whatever the situation, God's will is that we move from doubt to faith and assurance. So I think it's worth exploring the issue and asking how we can tackle doubt in a practical way. Now, um, if I can have the next slide, please. We've already acknowledged that every Christian doubts at some point in their life. There is no such thing as a Christian who has never doubted, just as there is no such thing as a person who has never done wrong. In fact, the Bible teacher Jeff Lucas once said this, he said, we will all doubt at some stage in our lives on this side of the grave. So if you start doubting, don't panic. It simply means you're not dead yet. So this is the first point I want to make. Don't be ashamed of your doubts. You need to be honest about your doubts with God, with your Christian friends. Because if you're honest, this is the first step towards the problem being solved. I just wonder whether Thomas was tempted to go along with the other disciples when they first saw Jesus, even though he didn't really believe. When the other disciples bounded up to him and said, we've seen the Lord, perhaps it would have been easy for Thomas to say, oh, say, oh brilliant, excellent, and pay lip service to what they were experiencing in order to fit in and avoid being left out. But as we've seen, Thomas was an honest man, and he told them honestly that he didn't believe. And although we tend to pick on Thomas for his doubts, his honesty here is the first step towards meeting Jesus for himself. In church, we can be tempted to go along with what everyone is saying. It can be tempting to, to accept the teaching of the church wholesale, even when in reality we're still unsure about some things. 
if we have the courage to voice our doubts, then these doubts can be addressed and sorted and we will move into a fuller and more meaningful experience of God, just as Thomas did. And the second thing I wanted to say is that you will have to battle against doubts. It is a real arm wrestle sometimes, and I've found that it can really help to view the process of faith and doubt as a fight that we need to win. I want to return briefly to Hannah Whittle-Smith, the Christian writer we met earlier, who herself struggled with doubt all her life. She said that on some mornings, she'd wake up to find what she called a perfect army of doubts about God, clamouring at the door of her heart, trying to get in. I have to say, I've had this experience too. You used to wake up first thing in the morning, a bit drowsy, and you're suddenly mugged by a doubt. Our first waking moments of the day can provide the devil with the perfect opportunity to get in early and sow doubts into our minds, which is what he does. Now, to counter this, Hannah Smith recalls the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6 about the spiritual armour that God has given us. Paul talks about how God has provided us with a shield of faith with which to extinguish all the fiery arrows fired at us by Satan. Mrs. Smith writes that the correct response to doubt is to lift up your shield of faith, block out the devil, and refuse to listen. And I know you'll probably think I'm quite strange, but I can say this because I'm going to go home in a bit and I won't ever see you again. Sometimes I've actually done this physically. I've actually woken up to find doubt in my mind and, you know, sort of pretended I've got a shield and keep it out. And the things have gone mad. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, so it can help. Of course, once the shield has been deployed, we then need to turn straight away to prayer and Bible study because we need to start the day as, as God intends. So, in the to the last section of today's sermon, I want to look at some of the different types of doubt that we face in our Christian lives and have to think about a biblical response to these doubts. I want to stress again that there are no easy answers, but the Bible is sufficient for us. God has given us his word as a tool to counteract the lies of Satan in our lives. So I was thinking about doubt uh, and I reflected on my own life and I, I thought of maybe four central types of doubt that we sometimes struggle with, that sometimes creep into our lives. I'm sure there are others, but these are the four most prominent in my own experience. So if I could have the next slide, please. (laughs) I can preach on that if you want. (laughs) It's okay, I will continue. It's not vital. First, we can doubt God's existence we can sometimes doubt whether there is any God at all. This type of doubt, of course, is very prevalent in the secular culture around us. It can be quite shocking to encounter just how scathing some people can be about faith in our society. Occasionally, through my long, aimless trawling through the internet, I come across comments made by atheists um, on websites, internet forums and blogs. And these comments can be quite hurtful. These atheists say that believing in God is like believing in the tooth fairy. They say that no intelligent person would ever believe in God. And they say that faith in God is a relic of the ancient world that we need to discard if we want our world to move forward. 
So in that world we live in today, it can be difficult to hold on to belief in God when his very existence is doubted so fervently by people around us. Um, I remember a couple of years ago I went on holiday uh, to Venice with my wife Emma and I was lucky enough to have a window seat. So I was uh, sort of admiring the view and it was a beautiful view. It's sort of early evening, the, car- the clouds were like a blanket underneath the plane and there was a beautiful sunset ahead of the, pl- of the, uh, of the aircraft. And at times like that, usually, I was very encouraged about my faith. But suddenly, again, I was mugged by a negative thought. I started thinking, and I started thinking that, well, people in biblical times imagined that God lived above the clouds. They looked up and saw the clouds, and they imagined that God was up there. And now, through our exploration of the world we live in, humankind has proved that there is no God actually existing physically above the clouds. And I made the connection in my head and I started to think, well, perhaps there really is no God at all. Perhaps the worldview adopted by the writers in the Bible really was superstition. Perhaps modern science and discovery have proved that God really isn't there. You can can see I was a a fun person to go on holiday with, can't you? Uh, the, The mistake I made at that moment is that I was looking for objective proof of God. We've already learnt today that we know God by faith, not by sight. So whenever we start to look for hard, material evidence of God in the world around us, we're always going to end up disappointed. We're always going to end up full of doubt. On the PowerPoint, I put a photograph of the British athlete, Jonathan Edwards. Many of you will remember the historical night when he won the gold medal in the triple jump at the Sydney Olympic Games in the year 2000. Our family were on holiday in Wales at the time and my dad dashed out into the garden um, and he marked out on the lawn of the cottage where we were staying the exact distance that Jonathan Edwards had had jumped. As I was only about four years old, it it looked even bigger than it probably would now. I was astounded by that amazing achievement. I have to say, my my dad didn't try and do the jump himself. He wouldn't have got far. Um, But many of you will remember that he actually attributed his success at the Olympics to his faith in God. And he subsequently became a proud and outspoken defender of the Christian faith. He even rose to the heights of presenting songs of praise. And as you know, you can't get any higher than that. Well, sadly, some of you will will have heard that Edwards has since abandoned his faith uh, completely. Now, sometimes when people abandon their faith, it's because they've fallen out with God or... They resent God or they fall out with the church and there's there's an issue there. But I read an interview with Jonathan Edwards where he said the problems began when he started looking for objective evidence for God. Once that thought had come into his mind, he said, my faith started to unravel. So let's take this as a warning. We know God by faith. We know him because we've personally encountered him in our hearts, in our conscience. Even if we do see evidence of God in the world around us, that should never be our foundation. Our foundation should be the personal encounters we've had with Jesus through our lives. The changes he's made in us. Those precious moments when he's lifted us out of trouble or when he's answered our prayers. Uh, I was very grateful that I've been able to share my testimony tonight um, because that is my foundation. I look back to the fact, as I said, that... God came at me out of nowhere. I didn't seek him. I didn't want to become a Christian. He came and grabbed hold of my life. And whatever else is true in my life and in the world around me, I know 
that, she, that God changed me that summer. I know that Jesus Christ became so real and tangible to me, and that's my foundation. Sometimes it's not all I'm hanging on to, but that's my foundation. Okay, have the next slide, please. Uh, the second category of doubt we can experience is that we sometimes doubt our salvation. So we might be sure that there definitely is a God, but we're doubting our relationship with him. So we might doubt that we're truly a Christian. We might doubt that we'll make it through to heaven in the end. And we doubt that Jesus has really done enough to deliver us in the final analysis. This type of doubt is common when you're confronted by how bad you are as a person. When you continually let God down, when you're horrible to your friends or family, when your passion for God runs dry, it can be easy to start thinking, well, maybe I really am beyond the pale. Maybe I'm just too much of a a sinner. How am I ever going to get to the finish line? At these times, although we may think we're doubting ourselves, we're actually doubting God. Because our salvation at the end of the day is down to God, not us. It is God who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is God who has promised to keep us from stumbling and present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy one day. And it is God who is faithful to complete the good work that he has started in your life. God knows how bad we are, but he has promised to keep us. And Jesus' death is enough to cover all your sins, no matter how horrible they are. I want to share a testimony at this point because I went through a very intense period of doubting my salvation when I was a student. It's a bit of a theme, isn't it? I did enjoy university, by the way. I had a great time and took full advantage of the uh, student lifestyle. But at the time, all was not well with my Christian faith. You see, I'd been a Christian for four years when I got to university. On the surface, it, it all looked good. As a teenager in my home church, I'd led a house group. I'd started up and led a Christian union in my school. I'd done a Christian gap year, working for six months overseas in war-torn Kosovo. I led worship regularly, and I read my Bible every day. So to the untrained eye, I was a strong Christian, and everything was, was fine. But in reality, the bottom had fallen out of my faith. I was feeling very lost. And the reason was that I'd started seriously to doubt my salvation. knew how bad I was, I knew how I continually fell short of the high standards that I'd set myself. And I started to worry that I wouldn't make it to heaven when I died. I started thinking that God would eventually lose patience with me, cast me off, and that would be be it. Now, looking back on it, it's easy for me to see how, how, how I was going wrong. But at the time, the doubt was very real, very consuming, almost crippling. And right in the middle of that horrible time, I went for a week to the Christian festival Spring Harvest, which I mentioned earlier. For those of you who haven't heard of it, Spring Harvest involves thousands of Christians cramped into a sweaty butlins for a week of Bible studies and worship celebrations. It really is a lot better than it sounds. So there I was at Spring Harvest. It was the end of the week. I'd had a typically doubt-filled and frustrating time at the festival, and I was sat in a huge gathering of 3,000 Christians. I was probably sulking a bit because I hadn't met with God in the way I expected. And the preacher happened to be preaching on Doubting Thomas, on the exact same passage that we're looking at today. And at one point in the sermon, he suddenly and very dramatically said, 
I've got a message from God for someone here in this meeting. And he just shouted out, Thomas, Thomas, stop your doubting and believe. So I just sat up. It's quite intimidating to be on first name terms with the Lord. Um, it was one of those moments the Christian comedian Adrian Plasser said, isn't it scary when we realise there's actually a God? A bit freaky. And the preacher continued, he said, Thomas, I will enable you to say, my Lord and my God. Because as we've seen, that was Thomas's confession of faith. And that's what I've been struggling to say for so long, because I was consumed by doubt. Anyway, nothing happened for a few months, and then one night I was sat alone in my university room on campus and I was reading a book given to me by a Christian friend and suddenly God just turned everything upside down. I was almost tempted to tell this story to Ian and not the early one because I just wonder whether it was almost more significant than when I first became a Christian. I realised that my my faith isn't fundamentally down to me, it's down to God. My eternal life is a free gift to be enjoyed and everything else flows from that. It was an amazing, liberating moment. And I promise you that as I knelt by the, down by the bed to praise God, I uttered the words spontaneously, my Lord and my God. And I made the connection with that, that experience at Spring Harvest those months ago. So don't fall into the trap of doubting God and the salvation he has given you. You belong to him and he's faithful to carry you through to the end. So we can doubt God's existence, we can doubt whether we're saved, we can also doubt whether God loves us. Let me go to the next slide. This is something related but not entirely the same. Sometimes I hear it said in churches that focusing on God's God's love is unwise, it's a bit wishy-washy, it's a bit emotional and there's no substance to it. Well I want to say this, it is vital for you to know that God loves you dearly. In his letter to the Christians at Ephesus, Paul prays that they might be rooted and established in love. Paul prays that these people in Ephesus would know the width, length, height and depth of Christ's love for them. And he's adamant that once they know that, their lives will be transformed. Again, when I was a student, I was wrestling with a big decision in my life, going round and round in circles. I got myself into a right state about it, and... A Christian friend of mine shared Paul's uh, words in Ephesians with me and said, you need to know just how much God cares for you. If you knew how much he loved you, you wouldn't be half as worried as you are. And the Apostle Peter draws this same link between our ability to trust God and his care for us. He writes to some young Christian leaders in his epistle and he says to them, leave your worries with God because he cares for you. The trouble is, it's very easy to doubt God's love because we don't always feel that he loves us. Our emotions go up and down, so it's, very, it's not the right approach to trust in them. Instead, we need to look at the truth. And if you're struggling to know that God loves you, look at the cross of Christ. The cross shows you that God was willing to give up what was most precious to him, his son, for you. The cross is proof that God loves you. God has demonstrated his love for you by sending Christ. And that historical event, the crucifixion, will never change. It will never be undone. So if you find yourself doubting God's love for you, think about the fact that he gave his son for you. 
Okay, the next slide, please. The last type of doubt I want to consider is when we doubt God's provision in our lives. This is an easy mistake to make also because our culture prizes self-sufficiency. We're taught from an early age that you need to earn your keep. You need to support yourself. You can't rely on handouts or people to bail you out. You need to build your own life, your own career, your own home. And the result of all of this is that some of us as Christians can find it very difficult to leave things, genuinely leave things, in God's hands. We find it nearly impossible to entrust God with our lives. So I remember a friend of mine saying to me once that God opens his hand out and says, give me your worries, cast your anxieties onto me, and we put our worries into God's hand, but then we keep coming back to him and prizing open the fingers and going, just a minute, I just want to have another think about that. We just talk about that again, and we won't leave it with God as he requires. If there's a difficult situation at work, we want to sort it out for ourselves. When we're asked to do voluntary work in church, we take it up in our own hands and end up doing it in our own strength. When our family is in need of something, we try and acquire it ourselves rather than asking God. The Christian writer Watchman Nee said that God is so rich that his chief delight is to give. God is so wealthy that his chief delight is to give. And again, the greatest demonstration of this is the cross of Christ. In Romans 8, Paul says, Since God has given us his Son, won't he also freely give us everything else? I think sometimes we forget just how powerful and generous God is. If you're struggling with a situation in your life, hand it over to God and let him show you just how powerful and generous he can be. Obviously, the new school term starts tomorrow, and I'm feeling a tad nervous meeting all the new kids and the new parents, getting back into teaching, get my energy levels back up after the holidays. Uh, obviously, with three- and four-year-olds, you need energy. Um, so I'm, to be fair, quite nervous about tomorrow. All last week, I was in school, slaving away to try and get everything ready. And in the middle of it all, I realised that I just wasn't trusting God. God has been faithful to me through the last school year, and yet my first reaction when I'm faced with the new school year is to worry and to take matters into my own hands. So let's not doubt God's provision. He loves us and he is able to make a powerful difference in our lives if we trust him. Go to the next slide, please. I'd like to finish by turning one final time to Thomas. After this account in John chapter 20, the Bible makes no other mention of Thomas. We don't know for sure what happened to him. But tradition says that he took the gospel to India and became a leading apologist for the Christian faith. Now, if this is true, I love the irony here. Thomas was the disciple who doubted, and yet God turned him round so completely that he became an apologist for God. Also, if he did go to India, that makes three things that I have in common with Thomas. We share a name, we share our doubts, and we share a love for Indian cuisine. Seriously, though, I'd like to finish by using Thomas as an example and say this. God doesn't want us to carry on doubting. Thomas did doubt, but once God had straightened him out, he went off in faith and did great things for God. Now, don't get me wrong. As a fellow doubter, I'm sure that his doubts occasionally came back. But Thomas didn't let his weakness define him. God doesn't want us to go round and round in circles. In the words of the 
the writer James in the Bible, the man who doubts is like a wave which is driven and blown about by the wind. Instead, God wants us to take him at his word, believe him and move forward. A Christian friend of mine once said to me, Tom, faith is a decision. It's a case of deciding you will believe God and take him at his words, even if everything within you and outside you causes you to doubt. I'll close by sharing a story about this man, the Reverend David Watson. Watson was an Anglican minister who lived and served in York and had a powerful gift as an evangelist. Watson once said that there is a difference between a seeking faith and a resting faith. A seeking faith is when you're still searching for an answer from God. You're praying to him, you're trying to work out what he wants to say. Whereas a resting faith is when you receive the answer from God and you rest back in him and move forward. David Watson said that when his church members came to him about some issue or problem in their lives, they would come into his office and sit down. And they would start the meeting sat on the edge of their chair, still seeking, still anxious to know the answer. But as they discussed together the problem and they started to glimpse God's faithfulness and God's trustworthiness, they gradually sat back in their chair. So God wants us to move from a seeking faith to a resting faith as we glimpse the power and faithfulness of Jesus. We all doubt and it's fine to voice your doubts to God, be honest with him. But here's the crucial thing. Once you have received an answer from God, you must believe it and rest in it. Believing is resting. Thomas was the disciple who doubted the risen Lord Jesus. But once Jesus had revealed himself, Thomas believed and went on to live a full and fruitful life in God's service. I'll just finish by by praying. Lord, I thank you for this church and I thank you for this Bible study. Such a healthy Bible study to undertake, Lord, looking at big people who made big mistakes. We thank you for Thomas, Lord. We thank you for his honesty. We thank you for the fact that you were so gentle and gracious with him, despite his doubts. And we thank you for the fact, Lord, that your will for us is always that we believe you, that we take you at your word. Your will for us is always that we are found resting in you and moving forward in faith. Help us to do that, Lord. We can be so slow to learn this lesson. But we thank you that at the end of the day, our lives and our salvation rest on you, Lord, and you are faithful. Amen.